Welcome to the Church on the Rock podcast. It is our prayer that this message brings hope and encouragement into your life as you go about your week. Thanks for tuning in. All right, church. Well, if I haven't, did I introduce myself yet? No. I'm Pastor Justin. Uh, <laughs> And uh, good morning. Thanks for that. Um, I'm the executive pastor here at Church on the Rock. Brian, uh, the guy who preaches normally, is not here. But before I took the position here, and we were in negotiations of how this is going to happen and when, you know, what's going to happen and what my job is going to be and what my responsibilities are going to be, I made a deal that I get to preach every five to eight weeks because I have an itch that has to be scratched. I love to preach God's Word. And so... Um, And when I get to do it, I get to sense God's grace upon me when it's happening. And I love it. And so Brian has said, oh great, there's a guy that loves to preach and I'll give him some of these messages. And in in Romans, there's two really difficult passages that many pastors say they don't want to preach. Because it's really hard to preach them. And one of them is Romans 9. Guess who Brian assigned that to? (laughs) Love that guy. Love that guy. Bless him on his vacation. And then the next one is the one they really don't want to preach is Romans 11. Guess who got that one? That's what you're going to be hearing today. Uh, Brian actually knows that I love challenges like this. That he, you know, God wants to push my preaching ability and then insight and to, to draw and depend on God's Spirit to do this. So I'm not mad at him. He gave me a challenge, and so I'm loving it. But this is a tough one. Uh, this is, it really is hard to preach to a Gentile audience. How, I just need to know how many of you have a little bit of Jewish blood in you? One, two, three, four. Six, seven, eight. So, yay! Welcome! We are so glad you are here. This message is mostly directed towards you because it's uh, mostly for a Jewish audience. Um, and it talks mostly about Jewish people. And for how many of you are Gentiles? You just, it's little to no blood that you don't even remember. If you are connected to any, yeah. How many of you are Irish? Yeah, then it's not Jewish. Anyway, I'm Irish, that's why they say that. So, um, so this message is really, uh, it's kind of hard for Gentiles to apply because it's spent a lot of time talking to the Jewish people. And much of Romans is that, talking to both Jews and Gentiles. And, um, and so here it is, Paul opens his heart back towards the Jews. He says in, he's, in chapter 11, he, goes, he starts off in the chosen people of God again. We studied that this, this letter was 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. Um, that it was then that, was, that this letter was written. Uh, a religion that was founded by a Jewish Messiah. Provided to us through Jewish history. Illustrated to us. Um, in, by Jewish authors and Jewish writers is being rejected mostly 
by the Jewish people. And we who are Gentiles are like, wait, what? Why do we love it so much? And the Jews seem to handedly reject it. Paul's hope for the lost Jews to be found is not coming true. And here we are now, 2,000 years later. 30 years after the the resurrection of Christ, it wasn't happening. 2,000 years later, it's still not happening. But Christianity is reaching the ends of the earth. Christians have fought beside the Jews to restore the nation of Israel and made a way for a once extinguished nation to return to existence after a thousand years. How many times has that happened ever? Once. Usually when a nation is wiped out of existence and left that way for a thousand years, they don't come back. But this nation, something is special about the nation of Israel. They're back. And then we keep going to this, and and Christians, I, I hope, are persistent allies to the nation of Israel. May that continue to be true. You know, in our prayer chain that went out this week, um, Israel was, they launched like 300 rockets into Israel from the Gaza Strip this week. And our prayer chain went out with a special prayer announcement to pray for Israel. And I'm, I was like writing my message, and this thing rolls in. I don't know who wrote it. I didn't pay attention to who wrote the bottom of it. But we're still hoping and praying for the blessing of Israel, right? We still, even though they reject, we bless them. We honor them. And so thank you, God, for that nation because it was through them we were given hope. But then we also recognized last week that Paul talked about the misguided zeal, or not Paul, well, Paul did, and Brian reaffirmed that we talked about the misguided zeal, right? Do you remember? I mean, I got his sermon notes, and he had multiple pages after that, and he didn't go through any of them. He's got a whole other message. He just really talked about how we can get misguided zeal too, and how we can be redirected and re, you know, get our, our thoughts on the wrong thing. And so that's concluded, and now we're moving back to the Jews and, and how the hope is fading for Paul. And I have a little story to tell you about, well, that kind of relates to this, this lost nation of Israel. Does God ever lose anything? No. Back in 1996, a church janitor's beautiful baby girl had grown up and was graduating from high school. She wanted a class ring, and he wanted her to have one. She was graduating from the same school that he went to. And so in his great love, he set aside enough money for her to buy the ring. She was very grateful, knowing that he lived humbly, and the ring was costly. When he gave it to her, he told her to take care of it. 
not to lose it and don't give it to some careless boy. She kept it. She watched over it, over it. She wore it happily. It was not just a nice ring. It was a symbol of her father's love for her. Now this girl went to college, and she fell in love with some moppy-topped sophomore boy who had a reputation for flirting. She told him she wanted him to have the ring and told him the story of how her father had given it to her with that warning. The boy tried to fit it on his fingers, but it only fit on the pinky finger of his left hand. And so there he placed it. And the girl went back home for winter break. He took precious care of the ring, but in the midst of the worst snowstorm in years, it slid off of his fingers and disappeared into the snowstorm. When he discovered it was gone, he began to think long and hard about where, could, where have I been the day that he lost it. He was on security at the college, that had, and he had walked literally all over that campus that day. He was shoveling, opening doors, writing parking tickets, plowing, and helping a guy move out of his apartment from one side of the campus to the other. He had no idea where the ring was. And so, with no searching, he called his girlfriend and told her. She was in near tears and did not even have the heart to tell her father. She returned to school and they continued their courtship. She forgave that poor floppy top boy. Winter came and winter passed. The snow melted and they kept an eye out for the ring but with very little hope. Then a series of storms came and dropped many inches of rain on the campus and it was flooded. One of the worst floods that they had ever had. The little creek that ran through the center of campus became a raging river with streams of water flowing to it. The girl's hope continued to fade that they would ever find the ring. She didn't mention it much because she didn't want her beloved to feel bad about it. But a few weeks later, when everything dried up, the boy and the girl went on a walk. And the girl mentioned the ring to the boy. And that boy suddenly felt a strange compulsion to go look for it. With all of his heart, he wanted to find that ring. And after saying a little prayer, he felt he should go look by where he, start, he helped a guy move the couch. He then felt as he neared that place that he was supposed to go to the edge of a patio. And on the edge of the patio, he found a pile of leaves. And the boy heard a voice from inside the, his own body, from his own mind, tell him to kick the leaves. The boy thought, this is crazy. It'll never work. And the boy kicked the leaves. 
And out of that little pile of brown leaves, the ring came spiraling out like a gleaming you know, movie clip from the Lord of the Rings. Like, <laughs> right? And he looks on the ground, he picks it up, he turns around, and he had not been looking for more than 20 seconds. Right? Turns around and screams, I found it! I found it! And he runs back to the girl who is in disbelief, right? But he, in almost no time, he found it. Now you may think, Pastor Justin, that's a weird, creepy story, and I don't believe a thing of it. <laughs> that little beautiful girl is right there. And I'm the moppy top boy, <laughs> in case you were worrying. That story is real. As is real as I told it to you, I promise it's true. Is it true? Amen. I lost the ring. I heard the whisper of God directing me to search for it. I was the one who kicked the pile of leaves. I did not take one wrong step or look in one bad location for that ring. I learned a lot that day. I actually shared Christ with people at the bank that day, right? But I learned some things. First, I learned God loves my wife. She was my girlfriend then, but I know she has the special favor of God upon her, and I love that. And that God loves us, and he cares about every little detail of our lives. He is paying attention. I also learned, like I said before, he never loses anything. Anything. If the Lord wants something or someone to be found, it will be found. Amen? If Israel is lost and God wants them to be found, they will be found. So here we are, 2,000 years from Paul's proclaiming these things to the Gentiles. And the Jews are still rejecting. And about only four in every 1,000 Jews claims that Jesus is the Messiah. And that hurts a little bit, doesn't it? So we go to Romans chapter 9. And that's where I preach from. And he said these kind of things. He said, the Gentiles who were once not my people. Anybody know what not my people is? Lo Ami. Right? Not my people. And they were lo ruhama, not loved, have become ami ruhama. Mine and my loved. Right? And so that's what it says about the Gentiles. We are recipients of God's promises. God, you remember this? Foreknew us. Am I, are you there? Foreknew us. He knew us. He knew who we were. He chose us. He called us. Right? 
He gave us right standing with Himself. Anybody remember the last part? And shared His glory with us. And so that was what we talked about in Romans 9. Romans 10, we talk about the misguided zeal. But he does talk about Israel a little bit. Paul quotes in Romans 10, he quotes Isaiah 65, 1 and 2. He says that, or Isaiah says this, and Paul quotes him. He says, I was ready to respond, but no one asked for my help. I was ready to be found, but no one was looking for me. I said, Here I am, here I am to a nation that did not call my name. All day long I opened my arms to a rebellious people. And so, uh, Paul mentions in that previous chapter, in chapter 10, that they were stubborn, they had a stubborn rejection. And so, that stubborn rejection that the Jews had left a gap in the door for everyone else, didn't it? And so, because they rejected, it says this salvation is now offered to everyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, they shall be saved. Romans 10 kind of wraps up saying, the beautiful feet of those who bear the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ has now spanned two millennia and the message of Christ has gone out to us on the other side of the planet, 2,000 years. The beautiful feet came to us from that message, right? Do you think Paul had any idea how many people would be saved because the Jews rejected? The number is estimated now in the billions. Right? So God's good plan is awesome. What a glorious thing. So I want to stop here and pray and thank God for those who carried the message to these ears and to your ears. Amen. Lord Jesus, um, Your ways are above our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And we just praise You and thank You that the beautiful feet that bore the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ came to us in this room. And we thank you and we thank them and we thank you for the jewish people god who wrote the scriptures according to your commands who delivered the ways of the lord and how what they did and the disciples of christ and our messiah jesus who was jewish we thank you for them who helped bring the message to us god bless the jews god bless the jews God bless the Jews. Amen. Amen. What a glorious thing. So now what do we believe about the Jews? And now we're finally going in to chapter 11. We must know that God always preserves a remnant of Jews. It's not like they're unsaved or anything like that. God has preserved a remnant. And he quotes this guy, Elijah. I don't know about you, but I like the prophet Elijah. Have I told anybody that? How do you know I like the prophet Elijah? My firstborn son is named Elijah. Elijah. I like this guy. 
But Elijah has some moments of weakness. So, after Paul talks about this story with Elijah, after Elijah calls down fire from heaven and has all the false prophets of Baal executed, Elijah then calls forth rain from heaven and ends a a brutal famine. Elijah thinks, hey man, if we do this, all of Israel will repent. And i got to take a pause here. I've been to the top of Mount Carmel. And you can see so far into Israel. And you, and then we drove out into those plains that you can see. And you can, everybody can look and see what happened on Mount Carmel. It is a big, visible mountain that overlooks a very flat plain. So many Israelites would have seen the victory of God calling down fire on that day. They would have seen it. It's not just even the group that was there gathered at the foot of the mountain. They would have seen it for miles and miles and miles. And so, Elijah thinks, we're calling down fire, we're ending famines, we're ending droughts, surely the Israelites will repent and turn to God and stop worshiping idols. And they don't. How frustrating does Elijah got to be at that point? Is he frustrated? I mean, he's got to be so frustrated. And Paul brings this up for a reason. They don't. Queen Jezebel threatens Elijah with death. He becomes fearful and profoundly depressed and says, God, would you just kill me? My life is, I was hoping that it would all work and it didn't. So just end me. I'm purposeless. I'm pointless. There's no reason for me to continue, right? And the Lord speaks to Elijah. Go to my mountain. Not Carmel, but head south and go to Sinai. And Elijah gets there after the Lord provides for him. And then he gets to the top of, into this area of Mount Sinai and he says, the Lord says to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you. They tore down your altars and killed every one of your prophets and I am the only one left and now they're trying to kill me. Go and stand, the Lord replies, go and stand before me on the mountain. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that rocks were torn loose. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound of a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said to Elijah, What are you doing here, Elijah? 
the same question he starts off with. He replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. And I am the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. I'm thinking Elijah's a little bit stubborn too. He's not getting the point. But he's a good man. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, anoint King Haziel to be the king of Aram. Then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be the king of Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Saphat, from the town of Abel-Meholaha, to replace you as my prophet. Anyone who escapes from Haziel will be killed by Jehu. And those who escape Jehu will be killed by Elisha. Yet, I will preserve 7,000 others in Israel who have never bowed down to Baal or kissed him. So that's, he has preserved a remnant. After referencing that story of preserving a remnant, Paul returns to his line of thought. He says, It is the same today, for a few of the people of Israel have remained faithful because of God's grace, His undeserved kindness in choosing, there it is the word again, in choosing them. And since it is through God's kindness then it is not by their good works or obedience to the law. For, it is in, for in, in that case, God's grace would not be what it really is. Free and undeserved. It's free. So this is the situation, Paul continues. Most of Israel have, found, have not found the favor of God they are, so, they are looking for so earnestly. A few have. The ones God has chosen, but the hearts of the rest were hardened. Now, this hardened means something kind of hard to explain. And so I have a friend here who's going to come up on stage and help me explain what hardened is in this term. Hi, Jeff. What do you do for a living? I do construction. Construction work, okay? And so, may I see your hands? All right. I notice my hands don't have the same thickness of skin. <laughs> right? And they are, these hands are what I would call calloused, aren't they? Yeah. So, when God says that He hardens their hearts, Jeff got these hands by doing work with those hands. Aggressive work. He was handling things, right? And gripping them through friction and, and almost like um, sometimes pain even. Gripping hard and holding and grasping them, his hands became thicker through this abrasive process. Thank you, brother. So, if you want to feel a sermon illustration, you have to shake hands with Jeff after church today. Just come out to him and be like, you got some meaty hands, right? But it beca- their, their hearts became through this abrasion relationship. So does it mean he just hardened them and said, I'm done with you? No, it's an abrasive relationship. Come on! 
It's an abrasive working with them. Right? It's an abrasion. He's working hard on them and they've become calloused and insensitive to the Lord. Um, on my right hand, how many of you play guitar? Anybody here play guitar? Which hand has numb fingertips? Your left, if you're, left hand, if you're right-handed. This is your strumming hand. This usually has pretty good... You can feel the strings pretty good, but your left hand is pressing on the strings. And it gets to the point where that's intense. How many of you have lost a lot of feelings in the tips of your fingers from playing guitar? Right? That's callous. They lost their sensitivity. When I was really aggressively learning guitar, I could put my hands on the table and not feel the tabletop until I turned them a bit and I could feel them with the, the, the pads, but the tips were fried. They become calloused to God. Not listening, not attentive, right? All right, that took me a while, so where am I in my notes? Okay, so our hope, even though their hearts, the Jews' hearts have become calloused and they seem to be lost, that they would one day be saved. But there are some wrong thinkings towards Jews that happen. Recently, a young man climbed, or claiming to be an evangelical Christian bought a gun and went on a killing spree in a synagogue in California. Anybody remember this story? Bought the gun legally and he wrote a manifesto that I believe is demonic. Why did he say he was killing the Jews? Because they killed Jesus and they rejected Jesus. That is demonic, satanic thought. If you ever have a thought about being mean or evil to the Jews, know that is against the will of God. Okay? You're not to blame them because if you were one of them, you'd have done the same. Right? It wasn't just the Jews' sin that put them on Jesus on the cross. How many of you are willing to raise your hand and says, mine put him there. I blame me just as much as I blame anyone else. Right? And so let's not think that we should be any other way but have the heart of Paul towards Jewish people. That we love them. That we care about them. That we desire so strongly that they would call upon the name of the Lord and the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Paul says this, did God's people stumble in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 11? Did God's people stumble and fall beyond recovery? Of course not. They were disobedient, so God made salvation available to all the Gentiles. But He wanted His own people to become jealous and claim it for themselves. And so, why do we have this, right? Why were we given it? He still loves the Jews just as much and he's doing, he gave it to us so the Jews would go, oh, and there's a billion of us now to make them jealous. Trying. And so he still loves the Jewish people. And we do too. Amen? Amen, we do. Now if the Gentiles were enriched 
Um, now if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much more greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. Paul's not giving up hope. The ring is not lost. He still thinks that they can be found. Doesn't care if the snowstorm and the flood last 2,000 years. God can still find His people. And when He wants them, He gets them. He's a God who gets what He wants. Amen? Paul then compares the people of God, the, the, the Israelites or the nation of Israel, to a cultivated olive tree. Wait, what? Why would he do that? Why would he compare them to an olive tree? Well, when a cultivated olive tree starts to age and wither, how long do olive trees last if you don't cultivate them? Mm, About 150 to 200 years. How old are the cultivated olive trees in Israel? A couple thousand years old. How does that happen? How do you cultivate an olive tree so that its life is rejuvenated? What do you do? If the tree starts to age, starts to wither, starts to produce diminished fruit, the cultivator will go out into the wild. And what does he do? He finds a wild olive tree and he cuts off branches. Why a wild olive tree? Wild olive trees stink at producing fruit that tastes good. It's almost useless fruit. It's from a bad, uncultivated root. It hasn't been shown love of a cultivator. It hasn't been cared for. It's not a good root. It's growing wild, probably next to a, a, a road or it's trying to find its way through for a stream. No matter what they do, if it's not cultivated, they just don't taste good. You don't go up to a wild olive tree and hope to get something good. You don't. Right? But they go up to these really bad trees and they cut off branches from a wild olive tree. And they bring back those branches and they walk up to their cultivated olive tree that's not doing well. And they finds the branches that are not producing fruit and he severs them. And then he takes the wild branches and cuts them and grooves them and then ties them and, 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 he, and he, what is that called? Grafts. There's the word. Thank you. I love it that a congregation is here to help me. 400 helpers. Okay. Grafts them back in. Places, ties them in. And what happens to the wild olive branches? They become domesticated, right? They became cultivated. They become fruitful. Their trees, their branches begin to bear much fruit. What happens to the rest of the tree? It goes game on. They got fruit. We're going to get some fruit too. And the new guys are here. They become jealous of the fruit. The tree becomes jealous somehow or revived somehow and it cultivates better fruit 
I think God made olive trees to prove a point. It's a really good point, isn't it? And it cultivates. He takes the new grass in and the older ones go, hey, we better get our game on. We better get going. We better do something, right? And so it makes the rest of the tree jealous. And that's what Paul is saying here. We pray that the the Jews become jealous when we get grafted in. The cultivated root is the Lord. It's the holy root. The original branches are the Jews. And we who are not Jews are the grafted ones. Thank you, Jesus. Romans continues 11 at verse 13. I am saying all this especially... Oh, yeah, it talks about the Gentiles now. Especially for you Gentiles. God has appointed me as an apostle to the Gentiles. I stress this, for I want somehow to make the people of Israel jealous. You hear it? You see it? Wants to make them jealous for what you Gentiles have so that I might save some of them. So why is, God, why is Paul even telling Gentiles to reach the Jews? Right? But praise God for that. I'll take it. For since their rejection meant that God offered salvation to the rest of the world, their acceptance will be even more wonderful. It will be life from those who are dead. What it essentially means is and once the tree is rejuvenated, he picks up the dead branches and some of them puts them back in. Isn't that crazy? Because the tree is revived and those branches become whole again. It's crazy. Olive trees are crazy. So if you go to Israel someday, go to the Mount of Olives and see those thousand-year-old trees and be like, I know what this is about. Amen? And since Abraham, continuing verse 16, and since Abraham and the other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will be holy, just as the entire batch of dough is holy because the portion given to the offering as an offering is holy. For the roots of the tree are holy. If the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. And you Gentiles, where branches from a wild olive tree have been grafted in, so now you receive the blessings of God promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. So then Paul now tells us what our hearts should be towards each other. In Rome, we have two groups, right? The Romans and the Jews. Now the Romans were actually split into a bunch of groups. Roman citizens, Roman captors, Roman slaves. But they were all Gentiles, right? And Rome, in Paul's mind, why does he write the book of Rome? He's intending to go there one day and making it a gospel training center to reach the world. All roads lead to Rome. So how do you get to the rest of the world? Get to Rome. So what's he going to do? Build a gospel training center there. That's what the book of Romans, I think, is. is to give them good 
Christian thinking to both Jews and Gentiles and to bring them together and unify them in the body of Christ so that they would work together to advance the gospel. Amen? So now you see the point that Romans really just brings forth. But Paul tells us to be careful about your mindset. He's telling us how to think. Here's this. It comes from verse... Now I'm going to go to 18. 11, 18. But you must not brag about being grafted in to replace the branches that were broken off. You're just a branch. Not the root. What's the first point? Humble. Be humble. Don't think you need to take anything out on Jewish people. Be humble. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because... I'm continuing verse 20. Yes, but remember, those branches were broken off because they didn't believe in Christ. And you are there because you do. So don't think highly of yourself, but fear what could happen. For if God did not spare the original branches, He won't spare you either. Joyce. Oh man. That's some serious stuff right there. Does anybody get how serious Paul is right there? That's like a threat. You better know your place. Stay humble. Don't get arrogant. You can get cut off. Don't. Right? Don't. So don't do that, right? Now you may stay, now we could have a big argument about once saved, always saved, and all that stuff right now. Just hold. We don't have, we got to end this service soon, okay? I'm at 11.13. It's almost time to be done here. But we'll get into that some other day, I'm sure. For God did not spare the original branch. If God didn't spare the original branches, He won't spare you either. So keep yourself humble. I want you to... Verse 25. We're going to skip a little bit. I want you to understand this mystery, dear brothers and sisters, so that you will not feel proud about yourself. Paul's driving the point home again. Don't get arrogant. should be the most humble people. You got in barely. Right? You are so... Lucky. So fortunate. I like this in 11.32. Paul brings up another point. For God has imprisoned everyone in disobedience so that He could have mercy on everyone. You were imprisoned in disobedience so that God could have mercy. Stay humble. Stay humble. I would, had Christ not knew me and chose me and called me and given me right standing with Himself and shared me His glory, I would be a wild and worthless stick worthy of fire. So I'm so, so grateful. Are you grateful? Are you grateful? He's so good to us. But now, the rebellious trees, branches cut from the rebellious root get placed into the holy tree of life. Because the root is holy 
We're made holy. Amen. We're given right standing. Amen? Amen. Romans 11, 12, 22. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe to those who have disobeyed, but kind to you who trust in His kindness. But if you stop trusting, you will also be cut off. And if the people of Israel turn their back from unbelief, they will be grafted in again. For God has the power to graft them back in. So what is that? I would say that's point number two. Pray that Israel is grafted back in. We've got to pray for them. Lord, bring them. Help them to receive Christ. You know, I read a new Pew study that said um, that some Jewish people in America, and there are many, but some Jewish people in America, the young ones, are starting to turn their faith towards Jesus. And for me, that means the end might be near. Right? Because it says in, late, in other chapters and other books that, that the end may be near, the end is near when Jews revive and they begin to be grafted back in. So pray that they're grafted back in and plead and be humble. So that's pr- lesson one accept humbly, gently. Step two pray for the Jews like Paul would pray for the Jews. Step three, continue trusting. That verse 11, 22, it's like, ooh. <laughs> What's going on? Continue to walk and trust in faith. Your life needs to be a, a walking example of faith in Jesus. Walk in it. Trust in it. Faith is, I, I say, everybody tries to define faith a different way. This is kind of how I understand it. Faith is belief enough to do something. Okay? Faith means we do something. Because demons believe, but they do the exact opposite of what's appropriate. Right? The devil knows. He knows his destiny too, right? Faith has to be walked out. Continue to walk in your belief. Continue to walk in it. Faith must be, faith without good works is dead. There's no faith at all. Right? So faith must be acted upon. Okay, no more bomb analogies. All right, especially when Israel's getting rocketed. Okay. And then the last point of this message, and worship team can come on up. I know they're over there somewhere. Come on up. What's the last thing to do? And this is really good for the worship team to be on stage. Paul goes into Romans 11, verse 33. Oh, how great the riches and wisdom and knowledge. How, sorry, I read that wrong. Oh, how great are God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand His ways. Why, my question is, why did this whole acceptance, rejection, all this stuff, trade hands, olives here, olives there, no olives here. Why did this all have to happen? I don't know, but he got a billion Christians. He's pretty good at this. He got them to change their lives, to turn over their lives to Jesus. So praise God in your lack of understanding. Paul quotes Isaiah 40 and Job 41, and these are some 
hard hitters. So I'm going to read some of Isaiah 40 and then one verse in Job 41. Here it is. Who else has held the oceans in his hands? Who has measured off the heavens with his fingers? Do you know how big the universe is? I just said I measured it. That's about good. He measures it with his fingers. Who else knows the weight of the earth or has weighed the mountains and hills on a scale? Who is able to advise the Spirit of the Lord? Who enough? Who knows enough to give Him advice or to teach Him? Has the Lord ever needed anyone's advice? Does He need instructions about what is good? Did someone teach Him what is right or show Him the path of justice? No. For all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole earth as though it were a grain of sand. That's awesome. Job 41.11 who has given me anything? This is God talking. Who has given me anything that I need to pay it back? Everything under heaven is mine. And then Paul closes out with this. For everything comes from Him and exists by His eternal power and is attended for His glory. All glory to Him forever and ever. Amen. Paul nailed it, didn't he? We're going to stand together and we're going to just praise. And if you can't stand, praise where you're seated. He's a good, good God. Let's lift Him up in praise. For more information and to stay up to date with what's happening in the life of Church on the Rock, please visit us on the web at cotrag.org. Thanks again for tuning in.